everyone. My name is Josh. I'm the minister here at ACC. Do we have, I grew, I didn't grow up in Nebraska. I grew up in western Colorado. Do y'all have Russian olive trees here? Okay, those thorny, nasty little, okay, good. I was hoping so. I wanted to make sure you understood this, this story. So I grew up in western Colorado. We had about, I want to say five acres of pasture back behind our house. Um, not big by Nebraska standards, but it was big enough. And on the far back fence line of our pasture was a whole grove of Russian olive trees. And so the horses, they wouldn't go back there. The cows wouldn't go back there and eat in it. But it was the perfect place for a 10-year-old kid to go back and kind of crawl through and make a little, a little fort. Because there were some little places where you could get back in there and hide out. And so I had, I had a lot of fun. But if you know anything about those Russian olive trees, they're thorny and they're nasty. And if you're a 10-year-old kid playing in the Russian olive trees, you're going to get cut and scraped up. It's just going to happen. And there were, I remember one time I got, I got in there and I got a pretty nasty um, cut on my arm. And, and my immediate reaction was, was anger. I was mad at this tree that, that scraped me. And so I... I, I was running through and I got scraped and I turned around and said, ow, and I kicked at the tree. Well, then I got scraped up even more on my leg. And so it wasn't a very wise reaction to that pain. Um, but here, here's, the big, here's the big problem with, with getting cut up. I don't know if anybody ever had that. My mom used to have this stuff in the bathroom cupboard. It came in a can. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what it was called, but it was like a red and blue. What's that? It, that sounds like it. Whatever it was, it was the most painful, awful stuff that she would spray on there. It, was, it stung. It was horrible. So when, when I got cut up, it was pretty deep. It, it needed to get taken care of. But I didn't want to go in and have mom spray that nasty stuff on my arm, so I, I hid it. I pretended like it wasn't there. I started wearing long sleeve shirts because I didn't want mom to see that and spray that stuff on there. What happened is it got all nasty and infected and gross, and it ended up being worse off than if I would have just taken care of the problem to begin with. I think that that's sometimes how we handle problems in our lives. There's two different responses we can have when we deal with difficult situations. We can either A, respond with anger and pound our fist and yell at the problem and use harsh words, and that's not helpful. It's like kicking that Russian olive tree. Or the other way we deal with difficult situations is we just ignore it and we pretend like it's not there. Where the truth of the matter is, is when we have difficult situations, difficult things we need to talk about, the best thing is to just step right up and face it with care and grace and forgiveness and understanding and meet it head on. Not with anger, but just with diligence. I say all that to say we're going to talk about one of those difficult situations today. We're going to talk about one of those difficult passages in Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your handouts, if you have a phone app, whatever you like to read God's Word in, I would love if you would open up with me to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Matthew 19, 1. 
It says, now when Jesus finished saying these things, he just got done, excuse me, preaching about his parables. When Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him in order to test him. They asked, is it lawful, um, lost my spot, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? Okay, so anytime we get into passages and teachings like this in Scripture, I think our immediate instinct is to immediately jump into talking about how we can apply this to our lives. And that's, that's not a bad thing, because at ACC we have this very simple two-step process for what a Christian looks like. Step one is read this book, and step two is do what it says. So it's understandable why when we would read a passage like this, we're, we want to jump right in and talk about what it means for us today. And I want to say this from the very beginning, this, this is going to be a difficult message. This might be a painful message. This might be a, a very hard message. And my, my goal is to approach this text not by kicking the olive tree, not by banging fists and yelling words. My goal is to approach this text with a place of love and a place of grace. Um, the last thing I want to do is minimize the pain that divorce causes. The last thing I want to do is is minimize those pains. So if you, if you grew up in a divorced household or if you've gone through the pain of divorce or, or if you've struggled in a marriage, I want to recognize right now just how painful that can be. So we're not going to stand up here. We're not going to yell. We're not going to be angry. We're not going to stomp. I'm not going to slam my fist. But we're not going to ignore it either. We're not going to hide this passage either. We're going to open God's word. We're going to have a conversation about it. But before we do any of that, I need everyone to hear me. Divorce and any other sexual sin that we can talk about is not an unforgivable sin. I want to be absolutely clear about that from the start. There's only one sin that Jesus says is unforgivable. He says in Matthew 12, he says, For this reason I tell you, every People will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Which is just a fancy way of saying the only way you cannot have your sins forgiven is if you refuse to accept Jesus and refuse to allow him to forgive your sins. If you walk in the light, if you walk with Christ, 1 John 1 says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I just want to make sure I made that very clear from the beginning before we jump into this passage. But my, my guess is this, about passages about marriage and gender and sexuality and all of those topics is that everyone exists somewhere between two camps. You're either somebody over here who wishes that we would just skip over these difficult parts of Scripture. That we would just, if they make us uncomfortable or if they apply to our life and you're just dreading this passage, that maybe you're over here and you wish that we would just breeze on through and not talk about these issues. 
Or you're on the other side and you wish that we would talk about sex and gender and marriage and the definition of marriage every single week because that's something you're passionate about. And no matter which of those sides you're on, you're going to be a little bit disappointed. Because one of them is kicking the Russian olive tree and one of them is ignoring it and we're not going to do either one of those. My philosophy in preaching is that we go through the Bible and when a topic comes up, we're going to talk about it. And when it doesn't come up, we're not going to talk about it. We're going to give all of the Bible equal coverage. That's why I don't do, I don't do holiday-themed sermons. You notice we didn't do anything for Fourth of July. We didn't do anything for Mother's Day or Father's Day or New Year's because my philosophy is I'm going to let the Bible decide what we're going to talk about. We, I picked out the book of Matthew, and we're going to go through the book of Matthew. And so today was always going to be about divorce and marriage and gender and sexuality. That way I'm not giving, letting my biases show through. We just let the Bible speak. So what does this passage mean for us? But before we can understand what this passage means for us, I think we need to understand what it meant for Jesus and what it meant for the Pharisees. They, they come to him, and the Pharisees said to him, in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? I think you need to understand that in this passage, the Pharisees are not asking this question in good faith. They're not concerned about the well-being of people who are struggling with divorce. They're not concerned about anybody. In verse 3, it says, some Pharisees came to him in order to test him. Which, by the way, that word test is the exact same word that Matthew uses to describe Satan in the wilderness testing Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Matthew uses that word maybe four times in the entire book. One is here, and one is when Satan is tempting, is testing Satan in the wilderness. So they're not, their goal is not, they're not interested in the lives of people's marriages. Their goal is to get Jesus to say something that's unpopular. Their goal is to get him to trip up in his words in order to trap him. And they specifically chose this topic because they knew it was something that affected a lot of people. We get this idea that divorce is, is so common today, but back in Bible times it was really rare, which is actually not the case. Um, in fact, by some measures... Divorce was actually more common in first century Rome than it is today. Did you know that? In first century Rome, you weren't even required to notify your spouse that you wanted to have a divorce. There's a, there's a court case from the first century about a man who sailed from Rome to Spain. He left his wife and child back in Rome. He found a new woman in Spain. He declared in Spain, I want a divorce and it was legal, and his wife back home had no idea about it. And when, uh, when the courts came to decide who got the inheritance, the new woman and the new child in Spain had rights to that inheritance. So their Roman divorce law was actually very relaxed. And when you look at Jewish culture, who Jesus is talking about, the only difference between Roman culture and first century Jewish culture was that it was one-sided in Jewish culture. Only the man could divorce the woman. 
whereas in Roman culture, it was both ways. But it was still very relaxed, and it was still very um, open. And so the, the Pharisees are asking Jesus this political question because he knows that no matter what he says, somebody's going to get upset. Somebody's going to get offended. They're trying to trap him in his words. And here's the other thing they're doing. This is really skeevy what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. If you read verse 1 again, it says, Now when Jesus finished these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan River. Why does Matthew tell us that he went beyond the Jordan River? Well, remember when we talked about Herod? And all of the different kingdoms that got split up. Well, Judea was under the control of the Roman governor, except for the little portion that was beyond the Jordan River. That part was still under the control of Herod Antipas. We're putting puzzle pieces together. What did John the Baptist get beheaded for? For calling out Herod's divorce. The Pharisees thought to themselves, you know what would be great while we've got Jesus in this region? If we could convince him to say something that makes Herod mad, and then he ends up beheaded just like John did, wouldn't that be great if our little Jesus problem just went away because he upset Herod? So in the Pharisees' mind, it's a win-win. They're asking him this political question. They're trying to get him trapped. They're trying to get him killed by Herod. But what they weren't expecting was Jesus's answer. If you go to verse 4, verse 4 says, he answered, have you not read that from the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Look what Jesus does there. He didn't talk about Herod. He didn't talk about the different political ideas that are going on there. He doesn't fall for their trap. He takes the conversation one step backward and goes back to God's original creation. And he invokes a time in history where sin did not exist in the world. And he calls his followers to follow that standard. As Christians, that is the standard that we should be aiming toward. Regardless of how many times we fail, regardless of how many times we fail to uphold God's standard, which is all of us every single day, by the way, God's original intention for relationships, for humanity, is for one man and one woman to be united as one flesh forever. That's the ideal. But again, the, the Pharisees are not interested in talking about what is right and wrong. They're just trying to get Jesus to say something unpopular so that half of his followers will get offended and leave, or so that Herod will have him beheaded. Verse 7, they said, says, they say to him, well, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? All right, let's be real here. They're, they're just trying to pick a fight. Anybody ever have that friend who, no matter what you say, will just say something antagonistic just to pick and poke to get you angry? 
They're trying to get Jesus to say something so that his followers will get upset with him and leave. And he says to them, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hard hearts. But from the beginning, it was not this way. Again, Jesus sidesteps and he's not interested in getting into the political debate. He goes back to God's original design. He says, Now I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The word there is porneia, immorality. It can mean general immorality, but in 99% of cases it means sexual immorality, by the way. So Jesus recognizes two things. He recognizes God's standard, but he also recognizes the fact that we live in a fallen world. He recognizes that it's a concession, because let's be honest, sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. In an abusive situation, in, a, in an adultery situation, God is full of grace and forgiveness, but at the same time, God's standard is God's standard. That doesn't change. That's hard for us. Because it takes admitting that we're broken people. It takes admitting that we're falling short of the glory of God. And it was, it was hard for the disciples, too. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, The disciples said to him, If this is the case of a husband with a wife, it's better not to marry. They said, if, if the standard's going to be up here and we're going to fail to meet it, then why don't we just not even bother to get married? And Jesus says, he said to them, not everyone can accept this statement except for those to whom it has been given. For there are some eunuchs who were that way from birth and some who were made eunuchs by others and some who became eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this should accept it. A eunuch, by the way, is somebody who had their, their, their physical organs removed from them, or it's a reference to somebody who was celibate for life. So a eunuch is somebody who, who basically had no sexual desire. And so I need you to understand that this text, um, talking about eunuchs, has absolutely nothing to do with homosexuality. It has absolutely nothing to do with transgender issues. What Jesus is saying here has nothing to do with that. What he's saying here is basically your two choices are to have sexual relations with your spouse or not at all. That's what he's saying. This or this, that is what God intended. But what's interesting about this passage, and it's, and it's harsh, and it's difficult, and we struggle with it, because real life is messy. What's interesting is, is what comes next, right after that. Verse 13 says, Then little children were brought to him to lay his hands on them and pray. But the disciples scolded those who brought them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not try to stop them. 
For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he placed his hands on them and went away. Now, at first, it might seem like this is a passage that's a little out of place. Like Matthew just stuck this story in here for no reason, because we're talking about divorce and marriage, and then we jump into these little children. But in light of what we just talked about, in light of God's standard and our sinful hearts and our inability to maintain God's standard, what was the last thing I remember Jesus talking about the little children? He was talking about followers and believers who were humble and submitted to him. The little children is us. We are the little children. Let the little children come to me. He's saying we should be the little children who have the willingness to kneel down in front of Jesus in submission and say, I am unable to meet God's standard. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. If you're struggling with sin or guilt or shame about a relationship that didn't work out, about any other way that, that you might have failed to meet God's standard, God's, God's purpose is not for you to dwell on it. It's not for you to feel guilt and shame and to hang your head. That's not what God wants. He wants you to come to him like a child. Because there's two things that are true about this. Number one, God's standard of right and wrong is on a level that none of us can reach, none of us can maintain. And number two, our response to that fact should be an attitude of submission and humility before God. Now compare that with the next with the next passage, the next person who comes to talk to Jesus is this rich young ruler in verse 16. He says, Now someone came up to him and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws. What still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give your money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay. Told you this is going to be a difficult passage. I'm going to ratchet up the difficulty level here for a second. When we talked about divorce, when we talked about Marriage. My guess is that in, it invokes some sort of emotional response within most people here. My guess is that it caused you to think about your life or the life of somebody else, and there was an emotional response. Whether it was negative or positive, that's what happens when God confronts us with our brokenness. Or maybe, and hopefully not, 
But maybe the passage about divorce caused you to think about somebody else you know and their brokenness and to reflect on their sin. I hope not. I hope that's not the case, but it's something we do. If the passage about divorce and marriage caused that kind of an emotional response in you, and the passage about the rich young ruler did not cause that exact same type of emotional response, we've got a problem. Because here's what happens. Whether we like to admit it or not, we have this tendency to maximize other people's sins and to minimize our own. And I think we sometimes operate under this false assumption that sexual sins are somehow on a worse level than non-sexual sins. We might not say it out loud, but we might act that way. And we, and we do this with the, with the passage about the rich young ruler where Jesus is commanding, you to, commanding him to get rid of your possessions, to be humble when it comes to your money. We, we try to minimize passages like this. We'll say things like, well, this is metaphorical. This, he's talking about metaphorically giving up your possessions. Well, that's interesting because we didn't just get done talking about metaphorical divorce, did we? I've never heard a sermon about metaphorical murder or metaphorical homosexuality. Why do we get to make this one metaphorical? Because it's difficult. Or, or we'll say, well, this, this only really applies to um, excessive physical possessions of the really extremely wealthy people. Well, isn't it, isn't it funny? And, and look, this is me calling out my own guilt because I do this to rationalize it in my head. The limit of how much stuff and wealth is too much always seems to be one level above what I currently have, isn't it? The point of this passage is not, again, it's not to make us hang our heads in guilt and shame about our possessions. The point of this passage and the passage before it and a lot of the New Testament is for us to understand that no matter how righteous we try to be, no matter how good we try to be, no matter how much we try to uphold God's standard, we're not going to do it. We're never going to be good enough. Think about it. Do you think for a second that if this story was different, if the rich young ruler would have said, okay, Jesus, and given away all of his possessions, do you think he would have just been sin-free from that point and Jesus would have said, congratulations, now you've earned eternal life? No. Of course not. There's a story. There, there, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but there was a man who took this passage to its extreme conclusion and said, you know what, I need to do this. And so he literally sold everything he had. He got rid of everything except for one pair of clothes and he donated it all to the poor and he joined a monastery to become a monk to devote his life to service to God. And he, he thought to himself, he said, I've finally done it. I've gotten rid of all my possessions. I'm not married. I've got no chance for greed or covetedness or anger because I have nothing, and I'm going to go live with a bunch of people who also have nothing. Finally, I can live a life sin-free, without greed, without lust, without any of that. You know what happened? He got to the monastery. They showed him his room, and he looks across the hallway, and he sees his neighbor, 
and his neighbor's room has a very small window that's facing the east that gets about 10 minutes more sunlight in the morning than he does. And he started to have feelings of greed and covetedness towards his neighbor because his window was facing east and his was facing west. And he became jealous. We can't fix our problems by following the law perfectly. We can't fix our hearts by being faithful in our marriage. We can't fix our problems through reading of the Bible or doing what the Bible says or obedience. Those are all things we should do, but that's not going to fix the problem of a broken, depraved, sinful heart. At the core of the issue, that's the point. Whether it's God's standards on sexual morality or God's standards on our possessions or committing murder in our hearts because we feel anger toward our brother, whatever it is, we're all equally guilty. And the disciples recognize this in the story about the rich young ruler. Because in verse 25, they ask him, it says, they were greatly astonished from what they heard, and they said, who then can be saved? They said, if this is what it takes to be in the kingdom, if this is what it takes to earn eternal life, to inherit eternal life, if this is what it takes, we're all in big trouble. They're almost, when you read it, I imagine they're almost to the point of despair. They're like, Jesus, if, if even this is not possible, then which one of us can really, really be saved? First, the, the marriage thing, and Jesus says, these are your two options, take it or leave it. And they're like, well, then we might as well not even get married. Then it's the, the possessions things, and they say, Jesus, who, nobody can be saved then. And, and what's interesting is Jesus doubles down on that sentiment, but then adds hope. It says, Jesus looked at them and replied, this is impossible for mere humans. But, and this is the important one, for God, all things are possible. I think when we're confronted with our sin, the point is not for us to be in this camp where we say, well, I guess everybody sins, so it's just fine. No. But the point is also not for us to feel shame and guilt and despair and hopelessness because we're never going to meet God's standard. That's not the point either. Because you can't go back in time and undo something you've already done. For God, all things are possible. Let the little children come to me, Jesus says. We need a Savior. We need forgiveness. In this next passage, the workers in the vineyard, this is not here on, on accident either. It's not random. I want to go ahead and read chapter 20, verses 1 all the way through 16. 
Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers for the standard wage, he sent them into the vineyard. When it was about nine o'clock in the morning, he went out again and saw others standing around in the marketplace without work. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and I will give you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and three o'clock that afternoon, he did the same thing. And about five o'clock that afternoon, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why are you standing here all day without work? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go and work in the vineyard too. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and pay them their wages, starting with the last hired until the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each received a full day's pay. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each one also received the standard wage. When they received it, they began to complain against the landowner, saying, These last fellows worked for one hour, and you've made them equal to us who bore the hardship and burning heat of the day. And the landowner replied to them, Friend, I'm not treating you unfairly. Didn't you agree with me to work for the standard wage? Take what is yours and go. I want, to give this, I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Am I not permitted to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. By the way, in this parable, we're the workers. Some of us grew up in a Christian household and went to a Christian school and we followed all the rules as best we could. We've never been late to work. Maybe the worst thing we did was stick a piece of gum under Mrs. Toffelmeyer's desk in the third grade, but other than that, we've had a pretty clean life. I don't know, maybe one time we stubbed our toe at three in the morning and said a swear word. And some of us have struggled with addiction and adultery and greed, and lust, and drugs, and alcohol, and divorce. Both of those people are equally guilty in God's standard. And both of those people are equally saved by God's grace. Isn't that beautiful? God is the great equalizer. There's no levels in heaven. There's no extra credit points. You're either in or you're not. You're either in or you're not. It doesn't matter how long you've worked for the landowner. It doesn't matter how much you've done. The landowner, that's God, says, do you want to come work in my vineyard or not? Do you want to be a part of the kingdom or not? And when you say yes, you receive your reward of eternal life. God doesn't look at your bank account. He doesn't look at your sins. He doesn't look at your actions. If you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that's what God looks for. He looks down, and all he sees is his son. Isn't that beautiful? 
God's plan to redeem the world started with his love for you and his desire for you to be with him in the kingdom forever. Romans 5. Paul says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he died for us. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees his son. I love this, I love this one from, from Hebrews 10. So then he says, their sins and lawless deeds, this is God speaking, I will remember no longer. He forgets it. You're a new creation. And then Galatians 4, I think, really hits the nail on the head. Paul says, but when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. And because you are sons, God sent his son into our hearts, who calls Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Let the little children come to me. If you know nothing from this passage of Scripture in, in chapters 19 and 20, I want you to understand this. God's standard of righteousness is not going to change. We can't bend it. We can't tweak it. We can't pull it down. Because God's standard of right and wrong is here, and it always has been here, and it always will be here. We don't get to pull it down to our level and make God in our image. The second thing I want you to understand is that none of us is ever going to reach that standard, which is why he sent his son. That's the point. He makes us his heir so that we can come to him and say, Abba, Father, I can't do it. I've messed up. Forgive me. And he does. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. I know it was a difficult passage of Scripture. Much of your word is hard. God, we are so grateful that when you look at us, you don't see our sins. You don't see our actions. When you look at us, you don't count the things that we've done. God, we're so grateful that when you look at us, you see your son. We pray all of these things in his precious name. And the church said...